Are you a fundamentalist? مگر باید یک چیز یادآوری بکنیم که اسلام اصلا دین اسلام با هر گونه افراد و تفرید در تضاد است دین اسلام دین معتدل است و رای میان است و الحمدلله ما هم یک مسلمان معتدل است There is no extremism and there is no fundamentalism. I do believe that Islam is a moderate religion and I am a moderate Muslim. We'll intervene whenever we decide it's in our national security interest to intervene. And if you don't like it, lump it. The problem with America is not that we go around marauding around the world imposing ourselves. Mm. The problem with America in the last 10-15 years since the end of the Cold War, really in the last 60 years, is that we've been too slow to get involved. I don't know how many Iraqi civilians were killed, but I can assure you that the number is the absolute minimal that it's possible in modern warfare. Every nation in every region now has a decision to make. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. That land over there is yours. You'll go back to it one day because your fight will prevail and you'll have your homes and your mosques back again because your cause is right and God is on your side. Welcome to the Darkened Hour. Welcome to another episode of the Darkened Hour. I'm your host, Adam Fitzgerald. Today is an Easter special in telling the story of an event that seems to have been forgotten in the public consciousness. It is the first attack on the World Trade Center, the 1993 World Trade Center bombing. And in order to tell this story properly, I have to give it context. There are many branch out effects relating to this event. And in order to give it its proper due, I will be reading from a number of articles cables, documents, and files in order to ensure that the listener, you, get the whole broader context of what brought about the worst terrorist attack since Pearl Harbor. And in order to do that, I'll have to return back to 1979, where many of the major players in the new enemy to the United States and to the world, replacing the old enemy, the Cold War, the Arab fundamentalist. When people hear this context, they automatically assume that the religion of Islam will come under attack, or at least, at the very least, heavy criticism. Nothing could be further from the truth. 
in regards to how I'm going to tell it. Because what you'll have is an understanding that Arab fundamentalism has no bearing on the religion itself. In fact, much like the Christian evangelical, these are people who misinterpret the texts to fit an apolitical or political agenda. When the Soviets invaded the capital of Afghanistan, Kabul, on December 24th, 1979, Christmas Eve, no one envisioned an enemy like the Arab Mujahideen as a global threat. The United States CIA station in Islamabad, Pakistan, have begun acting as a conduit for funding Mujahideen fighters. Although Pakistan ISI would later claim their involvement was minimal, it would later turn out to be the opposite. By the early 1980s, many foreign Arabs from the United States and parts of the Gulf were descending onto Pakistan, inexperienced and also without proper support for housing and food. The United States, through the Pakistan ISI, began its largest covert operation in the agency's history, codenamed Operation Cyclone. The program was to assist in getting the ball rolling, in arming and training the young and old who came to fight the common enemy of the West without ever getting the United States directly involved. The agency does not usually deal with the Afghan Arabs directly, but through an intermediary to Pakistan's ISI. The agreement is sealed during a secret visit to Pakistan where CIA Director William Casey commits the agency to support the ISI program of recruiting radical Muslims for the Afghan war from other Muslim countries around the world. In addition to the Gulf states, these include Turkey, the Philippines, and China. The ISI started their recruitment of radicals from other countries back in 1982. The program was designed to arm and finance the Afghan and Arab Mujahideen fighters in Afghanistan, to which the program lasted from 1979 to 1992. The first CIA-supplied weapons were antique British Lee Enfield rifles, shipped out in December of 1979, but by September of 1986, the program expanded to include U.S.-origin state-of-the-art weaponry, such as the FIM-92 Stinger surface-to-air missiles, in which some of 2,300 were ultimately shipped to Afghanistan. Funding continued albeit reduced, after the 1989 Soviet withdrawal as the Mujahideen continued to battle the forces of President Mohammad Najibullah's army during the Afghan Civil War. However, many historians would later claim that the war didn't start in 1979 by the Soviets. In fact, the funding for the Mujahideen was secretly ordered nearly six months before the invasion though that was, of course, denied for many years by the State Department. 
But according to the article from the Financial Times dated April 27, 2014, entitled, What Matters Most Indeed? Quote, U.S. National Security Advisor under President Jimmy Carter, Zygmunt Brzezinski, himself was crystal clear in his interview with Le Nouvelle Observateur in 1998 that he pushed U.S. President Carter to sign the first secret directive for support of the Mujahideen on July 3, 1979. The aim was in part to draw Russia into a war in order to hasten the weakening of its power and its capacity to control Eastern Europe. And that policy, in his view, succeeded. Indeed, when questioned in the interview 19 years later about the consequences in terms of increased Muslim militancy, he dismissively responded by rhetorically asking which mattered most, some stirred-up Muslims or the liberation of control Europe and the end of the Cold War. History has made that even more interesting question than it was in 1998. Some stirred up Muslims indeed, end quote. In the initial onset of the war, certain Afghan leaders called on the Arab Alima, the Muslim unity, to join the fight. Mustafa Hamid, who would later write in his book, The Arabs at War in Afghanistan, in chapter two, he writes, quote, Jalaluddin Haqqani, a commander in the group of Yanis Khalis, Hizb-e-Islami, was among those in the delegation that traveled to Abu Dhabi and who wanted Arabs to come and join the jihad. He asked Abdul Rasul Sayyaf to call for Arab volunteers to come to Afghanistan, arguing the Arabs will not know what we need unless they come here. Sayaf agreed to Haqqani's request and said he would call for volunteers at a press conference he was to hold in Abu Dhabi. But other Afghan leaders said, we do not need Arab volunteers. We need money. I attended this press conference and Sayaf did call for Arab volunteers as Haqqani had asked. Instead, he only asked for donations and support, end quote. This would cause many Arabs to come to fight in the jihad. Many other Arabs, including countries like the Philippines, Indonesia, Syria, Jordan, Algeria, and Egypt, would arrive through an office called the Maktab al -Kidmet. These recruiting efforts were made possible by people such as Omar Abdel Rahman, who is known as the Blind Sheikh and one of the lead emirs of our Egyptian radical fundamentalist group, the Gamma Islamiyah. Palestinian Imam and Jordanian Saudi Arabian teacher, Abdullah Yusuf Azam, and another Egyptian radical from another Egyptian sect, the Al-Jihad, which would later be renamed Egyptian Islamic Jihad, 
Dr. Ayman al-Zwahari. All of these men would later play an impactful role in the future of how Arab terrorism began to infuel its fury with the help directly and indirectly of the intelligence services. Throughout the 1980s, Egyptian Takfiri Muslims were released from the prisons under Egyptian President Mubarak to enter the Jihad in Afghanistan in the hopes of getting them killed. Mubarak was an anti-Islamist and wanted to follow in the footsteps of previous presidents like Gamma Abdel Nasser. However, some of these Egyptian radicals began to situate themselves into the Maktab al-Kidamat offices and getting entry-level positions. Egyptians, such as Abu Hafsa al-Masri, who was one of al-Qaeda's founders, who was trained in missile use and was a police officer, Abu Jihad al-Masri from the Tanzim al-Jihad and later al-Qaeda served as the anti-aircraft missile section group. Also, Abu Obeda al-Banshiri, also a police officer in the Egyptian country. These men would later form al-Qaeda in the Sudan. But what is takfiri? The question is best answered by FBI agent out of New York, Ali Soufan, in his book, The Black Banners, located in chapter one, The Fatwa and the Bet. Quote, Wahhabism by itself is a peaceful version of Islam, as attested to by the millions of Muslims in Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states who are practicing Wahhabis who have nothing to do with violence or extremism. The extremism and terrorism arise when Wahhabism, a puritanical form of Islam, with a distrust of modernity and an emphasis on the past, is mixed with a violent form of Salafism, a strand of Islam that focuses heavily on what pious ancestors did. An even more potent combination occurs when the introduction of the idea of takfir wherein Muslims who don't practice Islam the same way are labeled apostates and are considered to be deserving of death. The result is like mixing oil and fire. It was in Afghanistan during the first jihad when Muslims from all across the world came to fight the Soviets that these concepts combusted. Wahhabis came from Saudi Arabia and the Gulf Salapis, primarily from Jordan, and Takfiris, mainly from North Africa, Algeria, Morocco, Libya, and Egypt. Takfir was popular among the North African jihadists, as they had been fighting their own nominally Muslim regimes, and therefore had to justify their terrorism and the killing of fellow Muslims in the process End quote. However, what would introduce the idea of Wahhabism and later takfir to the Muslim communities in countries like Egypt, Syria, and Jordan? 
It would start with Ibn Tamiyah, a Hadith scholar, and later this would reverberate with an Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood member named Sayyid Qutb. Sayyid Qutb would later write one of the most influential books on the subject, Millstones. His biography can be understood this way. The story begins in the summer of 1949, when a middle-aged school inspector from Egypt arrived at the small town of Greeley in Colorado. His name was Said Kutub. Kutub had been sent to the US to study its educational system, and he enrolled in the local state college. His photographs appear in the college yearbook. But Kutub was destined to become much more than a school inspector. Out of his experiences of America that summer, Kutub was going to develop a powerful set of ideas that would directly inspire those who flew the planes on the attack of September the 11th. As he had travelled across the country, Kutub had become increasingly disenchanted with America. The very things that on the surface made the country look prosperous and happy, Kutub saw as signs of an inner corruption and decay. Americans lived these isolated lives surrounded by their lawns. They lusted after material goods. And this, says Kutub quite succinctly, is the taste of America. What Kutub believed he was seeing was a hidden and dangerous reality underneath the surface of ordinary American life. One summer night, he went to a dance at a local church hall. He later wrote that what he saw that night crystallized his vision. He talks about how the pastor played on the gramophone, one of the big band hits of the day, Baby, It's Cold Outside. He dimmed the lights so as to create a dreamy, romantic effect. And then Kutub says that chests met chests, arms circled waists, and the hall was full of lust and love. I've got to go away. But baby, it's cold outside. This evening is been at you. To most people watching this dance, it would have been an innocent picture of youthful happiness. But Kutub saw something else. The dancers in front of him were tragic lost souls. They believed that they were free, but in reality, they were trapped by their own selfish and greedy desires. American society was not going forward. It was taking people backwards. They were becoming isolated beings, driven by primitive animal forces. Such creatures, could have believed, could corrode the very bonds that held society together. And he became determined that night to prevent this culture of selfish individualism taking over his own country. In 1950, Said Kutub travelled back to Egypt from America. He too was determined to find some way of controlling the forces of selfish individualism. And as he travelled, he began to envisage a new type of society. It would have all the modern benefits of Western science and technology. But a more political Islam would have a central role to play in keeping individualism in check. It would provide a moral framework that would stop people's selfish desires from overwhelming them. 
But Kutub realized that American culture was already spreading to Egypt, trapping the masses in its seductive dream. What was needed, he believed, was an elite, a vanguard, who could see through these illusions of freedom, just as he had in America, and who would then lead the masses to realize the higher truth. The masses need to be led, and it is this vanguard group that will be responsible for the task of leading the people out of the darkness in, into the light of Islam. Because the masses had succumbed to their own selfish desires, and he wanted the vanguard to be different, to be pure, to be standing together outside of all of this corrupt situation. Bringing people back to the truth. On his return, Qutb became politically active in Egypt. He joined a group called the Muslim Brotherhood, who wanted Islam to play a major role in the governing of Egyptian society. And in 1952, the Brotherhood supported the revolution led by General Nasser that overthrew the last remnants of British rule. But Nasser very quickly made it clear that the new Egypt was going to be a secular society that emulated Western models. He quickly forged an alliance with America. And the CIA came to Egypt to organize security agencies for the new regime. Faced with this, the Muslim Brotherhood began to organize against Nasser. And in 1954, Qutb and other leading members of the Brotherhood were arrested by the security services. What then happened to Qutb was going to have consequences for the whole world. In the 1970s, this film was made that showed what happened in Nasser's main prison in the 50s and 60s, which was based on the testimony of survivors. Torturers who had been trained by the CIA unleashed an orgy of violence against the Muslim Brotherhood members accused of plotting to overthrow Nasser. At one point, Qutb was covered with animal fat and locked in a cell with dogs trained to attack humans. Inside the cell, he had a heart attack. Qutb survived, but the torture had a powerful, radicalizing effect on his ideas. Up to this point, he had believed that the Western secular ideas simply created the selfishness and the isolation he had seen in the United States. But the torture, he believed, showed that this culture also unleashed the most brutal and barbarous aspects of human beings. Kutub began to have an apocalyptic vision of a disease that was spreading from the West throughout the world. He called it Jahiliya, a state of barbarous ignorance. And what made it so terrifying and insidious was that people didn't realize that they were infected. They believed that they were free and that their politicians were taking them forward to a new world, when in fact they were regressing to a barbarous age.
The sense is that Jehali is so dangerous now because it not only is advanced by Western powers, but Muslims, this is like a charge of false consciousness, Muslims have become infected with this Jehiliyyah. So now the threat of Islam is also from within. It's from without and within. It's the state of emergency because Jehiliyyah is a condition that pervades everything and everybody. It's even infected our powers of imagination. We don't even know that we're sick, that we now worship materialism and the self and individual truths over the real truths. Um, so it's an incredible sense of epic confrontation where Islam is being insulted on all fronts, from within, from without, culturally, militarily, economically, politically. And under those circumstances, any way of fighting it becomes justified and legitimate. And in fact, has a kind of existential weight because somehow it's doing God's will on earth. To Kutub, this force of Jahiliya had now gone so deep into the minds of Muslims that a dramatic way had to be found to free them. In a series of books he wrote secretly in prison, which were then smuggled out, Qutb called upon a revolutionary vanguard to rise up and overthrow the leaders who had allowed Jahiliya to infect their country. The implication was that these leaders could justifiably be killed because they had become so corrupted they were no longer Muslims, even though they said they were. Faced with this, Nasser decided to crush Qutb and his ideas. And in 1966, Qutb was put on trial for treason. This is the only known film of Qutb as he awaits sentence. The verdict was a foregone conclusion. And on August the 29th, 1966, Qutb was executed. The war was an enticing atmosphere for the true believer in jihad and what it meant for one's natural soul. Palestinian imam and noted Hafiz, Abdullah Yusuf Azam, was drawn here by a direct invitation from Abdul Rasul Sayyaf, head of the Idihad il-Islami, the Islamic Union faction. Sayyaf had close relations with Saudi Arabia and helped mobilize Arab jihadist volunteers for the Mujahideen forces. One of only two Afghan warlords who allowed Arabs to fight alongside the Afghan armies, with Jalaluddin Haqqani being the other. It was during this period that Azam began noticing that Arab foreign fighters were coming in record numbers into Peshawar, Pakistan. His idea was simple to begin operating an office properly and train and help educate the Mujahideen. Meanwhile, the State, Pop, the State Department would allow its own national security advisor, Zygmunt Brzezinski, to travel to Afghanistan and to help mobilize the growing Arab armies. We know of their deep belief in God, and we are confident that their struggle will succeed. You know, that land over there is yours. You'll go back to it one day because your fight will prevail and you'll have your homes and your mosques back again because your cause is right and God is on your side. The purpose of coordinating with the Pakistanis would be to make the Soviets bleed 
for as much and as long. Meanwhile, Azam traveled to Saudi Arabia to perform Hajj and invited a Saudi that he had met on his travels to Saudi Arabia, Osama bin Laden, who was already making a name for himself by using his father's construction company, the Saudi bin Laden Group, to help with the Mujahideen fighters. Along with Wail Juladeen and Jamal Khalifa, bin Laden's brother-in-law, they would go with him to a meeting. The discussion would be about operating a recruitment office for Arabs. It would be called the Maktab al-Kidamat, Mac for short, and from the Arabic, the Afghan Services Bureau. It would serve two primary purposes, to have Arabs serve the Afghan Mujahideen and to be the starting point for Arabs in the service of Afghans. Baluchistan, Pakistan is the largest province of Pakistan by land area, but it's the least populated one. It shares land borders with the Pakistani provinces of the Khyber Pass and Punjab to the northeast and Sindh to the southeast. However, there's also a thoroughfare for opium smugglers, gun runners, and major narcotics traffickers traveling through Pakistan from Afghanistan or India. It is also home to a certain clan from the Muhammad Karim bloodline. Abdul Basit Mahmoud Abdul Karim, also known by numerous aliases, one in which is most commonly known as Ramzi Youssef. It is not definitively known where he was born, but it is said to have been raised in Balochistan by his father and mother. His uncle, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, also known as KSM, who also went by 50 other aliases, was alleged to have been born here. But according to an FBI debriefing of Youssef, taken on February 7, 1995, he was born in Kuwait and moved to Pakistan, where he learned to build bombs. From Yusuf's own testimony, quote, Yusuf stated he was born in Kuwait and lived there for 20 years until the Iraq war, where his family moved to Pakistan. Yusuf stated his family was originally from Pakistan. He attended high school in Kuwait, and from 1986 to 1989, the West Glamorgan Institute of Higher Learning in the United Kingdom. Yusuf stated he earned a higher national diploma in electronics, and the course was called computer-aided electronics. In 1989, he returned to Kuwait and worked as a communications engineer at the National Computer Center for the Minister of Planning. After Iraq invaded Kuwait in August of 1990, Yusuf then moved to Pakistan. Yusuf stated that his first language is Arabic, but he also speaks Baluch and English as well. After moving to Pakistan, Yusuf stated he went to various training camps in Afghanistan for a period of six months. Yusuf described these camps as a place where Arabs can get training in explosives, defensive tactics, weapons use, etc. Yusuf stated that each camp specializes in one area, for example, explosives. Yusuf stated that after training in Afghanistan, he returned to Pakistan 
to read about bomb building, end quote. In 1982, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed had listened to a speech given by a notable Sunni preacher, Abdul Rasul Sayyaf, on a radio played in the town coffee shop. He gave an impassioned plea about how the Muslim Ummah should join the jihad against the invading Soviet army in Afghanistan. Yet, it was his university education that was his mother's wishes first. College Sheikh Mohammed enrolled at North Carolina Agriculture and Technical State University, where he successfully completed his courses and received his bachelor's in science in 1986. By the following year, in 1987, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed would travel back to Peshawar, Pakistan, and there he would meet up with his brother, Zahid al-Sheikh. It was here that Zahid worked as the head of the Pakistani branch of the charity Mercy International, a position given to him by Abdul Rasul Sayyaf. Yusuf was sent to the United Kingdom for education. In 1986, he enrolled at Swansea Institute in Wales, where he studied electrical engineering, graduating four years later. In 1989, he once again returned to Peshawar and began training at the Sada training camp for Afghan Mujahideen fighters. There, he learned how to manufacture explosive devices from Abu Jafar al-Kandari, who was an explosive expert from the Jihad Wal training camp, which was located in coast Afghanistan. Jafar also trained another fellow Mujahideen who just arrived in 1989. His name was Ahmed Ajaj. Yusuf graduated from Swansea in 1989, just before he trained at the Sada training camp, operated under Afghan warlord and the de facto head of the Northern Alliance, Abdul Rasul Sayyaf. Ramzi Yusuf would then complete his training from the Abu Jafar al-Kandari at the Sada training camp, even though, according to Jafar, Yusuf was not that impressionable in bomb-making. Ajaj was, however, better suited at it. Ajaj, along with Yusuf, would then travel to the mountainous Paktia province near Torabor, Afghanistan, to train in explosives at the Kaldin camp. The camp was run by a Saudi, Khalid Sulaimin Jahid al-Hubashi, and Ajaj was indeed quite the character. Although very little is known about his formative years, his profile tells quite a story, one that is fashioned from the Israeli intelligence service, the Mossad. Ajaj was actually a small-time crook who was arrested in 1988 for counterfeiting U.S. dollars. Ajaj and two other members of his counterfeiting ring ran a printing press in an Arab cemetery outside East Jerusalem, housing their equipment in the same building where religious Muslims washed corpses before burial. When Israeli police raided the cemetery, they arrested Ajaj, who was holding some $100,000 of bogus U.S. currency. Another gang member was carrying an antiquated pistol. Ajaj was convicted for counterfeiting and sentenced to two and a half years. It was during his prison stay that the Israeli Mossad apparently recruited him this claim was, in, was briefed by Israeli intelligence sources. By the time he was released after having served just one year, 
he had seemingly undergone a radical transformation. The common crook who had become a devout Muslim fanatic. And soon after, he was arrested for smuggling weapons into the West Bank, allegedly for the group Al-Fatah. Al-Fatah has another nefarious history, which goes back to the Abu Nadal organization. What is the Abu Nadal organization? It is actually a common name for the Palestinian nationalist group Al-Fatah, the Revolutionary Council. The Abu Nadal organization was founded by Abu Nadal. Abu Nadal also went by his name, his actual name, Sabriya Khalil al-Bana. This group, Al-Fatah, was created by a split from Yasser Arafat's Fatah faction of the Palestinian Liberization Organization in 1974. The group had been designated as a terrorist organization by the United States, the United Kingdom, Israel, Japan, Canada, and the European Union. The Abu Nadal organization, also known as the ANO, was secular and anti-Western, but was not particularly associated with any ideology, or at least no such foundation was communicated. The organization was strongly linked with Abu Nadal's personal agenda. The group carried out hijackings, assassinations, and kidnappings of diplomats and attacks on synagogues. 90 attacks during this period of 1974 to 1992 was conducted under the ANO. The ANO was established by Sabri Khalil Abana, who was a former Ba'ath Party member. Albana established his faction within the Palestinian Liberation Organization just prior to the Black September in Jordan and following internal disagreements with the PLO. During Fatah's Third Congress in Damascus in 1971, he emerged as the leader of the leftist alliance against Yasser Arafat. In fact, he thought that the PLO was considered too liberal and too inadept to violence against their preconceived enemies. Shortly thereafter, Abu Nadal created his own organization, El Fatah. This would bring about problems shortly thereafter, in which it would bring about other problems for the Palestinians in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. And during this period, the end of the Cold War, and the rise of the radical fundamentalists through the help of the intelligence services and through the help of foreign governments, such as Saudi Arabia, the United States, and Israel, in which a young Benjamin Netanyahu would remark that the Palestinian problem belonged not to the Israelis or the Israeli government, but to the Palestinians themselves for allowing groups like Hamas and the Palestinian Jihad Organization to exist and to attack Israelis in response for their encroachment of Palestinian lands. PLO state is a deadly danger to world peace because it is the surest guarantee 
of increased terrorism and war, however noble the idea may sound. I call now as my first witness, Mr. Benjamin Natai. Mr. Natai, welcome to the advocate. Thank you. Glad to be here. Mr. Natai is a graduate of MIT. He is an Israeli, and he is a man who has written widely on this question before the House tonight. Mr. Natai, is the issue of self-determination the core of the conflict in the Middle East? No, I don't believe it is. The real core of the conflict is the unfortunate Arab refusal to accept the state of Israel. And I think, as was mentioned earlier, for 20 years the Arabs had both the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. And if self-determination were, as they now say, the core of the conflict, they could have easily established a Palestinian state then. But they didn't. When did the issue arise then? Well, for 20 years, we didn't hear a word about self-determination. And, in fact, what we did hear those of us living in the Middle East, was about driving the Jews into the sea. Now, after 1967, under the leadership of the PLO, the hardline strategy shifted to adopting a moderate, dressed-up slogan, which uh, now talked in terms of first a secular democratic state and then replaced it with Palestinian self-determination. But what this really means, contrary to what Mr. Aruri said, uh, about 1977 being a changed year in the PLO's uh, objective. <clears throat> Let me quote you what the PLO Information Office said in a Dutch paper in 1977, in May 5th. 77? May 5th, 1977, yes. The statement was very simple. Our objective remains the destruction of the Zionist State of Israel. So let's keep in mind that what we're talking about here is not the attempt to build a state, but to destroy one. Do the Palestinians have a right to a separate state? Well, Mr. John has been talking about human rights. Well, I think that it's, no, I don't think they do, but I think that it's quite instructive that the Palestinians who are invoking the right of uh, uh, self-determination, which is, a, is an attribute for separate nations, themselves are the ones who define themselves as part of the Arab nation. Now, no one is denying that there are Palestinian Arabs. There's a very distinguished Palestinian Arab sitting right next to me. But the Palestinians themselves, in the Palestinian National Covenant, the very first article, say that the people of Palestine, quote, are part of the Arab nation. Well, let's look at the Arab nation. It has 21 states, an area roughly the size of the United States, and one-sixth of the entire world's wealth. Now, add to that the fact that there already exists a Palestinian state, and that is Jordan, 60% of whose population is Palestinian. It's, I, think, I think it's quite interesting that Yasser Arafat and King Hussein, who are bitter enemies, agree on one thing, that Jordan is a Palestinian state. So what we're talking about is a demand for a 22nd Arab state and a second Palestinian state. What should, be, it, what should be done with the Palestinians on the West Bank? It's a problem, so what should be done about it, in your opinion? Well, I think that the Palestinians in the West Bank are going to be offered the full human rights, the full civil rights, as there are no Arabs are offered in the Middle East. No Arabs whatsoever have any full human rights or the right to vote for their own government. Those Arabs who lived in Israel in the pre-67 boundaries are the only Arabs in the Middle East who offer that right. And I'm all in favor of having the same Arabs living in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip 
being offered such a right in the final peace agreement. Can we have uh, peace in the Middle East? Very briefly, please. Yes, I sincerely hope so. Look, I'm 28 years old. I've had to defend my country in two wars and in many battles. Nobody wants peace more than Israel. But the stumbling block to the road for peace is this demand for a PLO state, which will mean more war, which will mean more violence in the Middle East. And I think, I sincerely believe, if this demand is abandoned, we can have real and genuine peace. Thank you. Thank you, Secretary. Now we'll go to Mr. Adjami. Mr. Adjami, some questions for Mr. Natal. Mr. Natai, you've told everyone that the Palestinians on the West Bank and the Gaza Strip will enjoy full human rights. Could you tell me how that's compatible with the presence of Israeli forces in their midst? Well, uh, the Arabs living now under the Arabs who lived in Israel, 400,000 of them, 400,000, uh, between 1948 and 67, as I said earlier, certainly enjoy full human rights. And as I I'm said, not talking the only about ones. the Arabs in Israel. I'm talking about the Arabs on the West yes, Bank yes. and the Gaza Strip. If you let me, I'll answer your question, Mr. Ajani, please. Uh, the Arabs living in Israel are the only ones who are entitled to vote for their governments, the only ones who have representative in a parliament in the entire Middle East. Now, it's true that the West Bank and the Gaza Strip are now undergoing a period of transition. In fact, no Arab government has been willing to negotiate so far about this period of transition. And I think that when this transition, when negotiation period is ended, there is no reason why under either Jordanian citizenship or Israeli citizenship, these Arabs will not have the full human rights, the right to vote for their representatives as the Arabs in Israel do, as hopefully all the Arabs in the Middle East will do someday. Mr. Natai, does the state of Israel itself accept that the, the people on the West Bank and the Gaza Strip have the right to vote on whatever future they choose? Well, Mr. Ajami, we just, I just uh, outlined that in the event that this negotiation process will continue, uh -huh. I'm sure that what we're talking about is in fact eventual citizenship of some kind, either Jordanian or Israeli or in any other arrangement in which these people will certainly vote. Mr. Natai, you've given yourself the right to determine that you are an Israeli, but you've also given yourself the right to negate the other entity, which I think is not somehow consistent with global practice at this time, is it? Mr. Ajami, I have never, never rejected another entity, nor have I ever declared my intent to destroy it least of all the Palestinian Arabs who I fervently want to live in peace with. All I'm saying is that it is the Palestinian Arabs themselves, their leaders, Arafat, Muhsin, who Morris uh, Abrams quoted earlier, Farouk Adoumi, the number two man in the PLO, these are the ones who say they are part of the Arab nation. These are the ones who say they already have a Palestinian state. There is no right to establish a second one on my doorstep, which will threaten my existence. There is no right whatsoever. Okay, Mr. Natai, the... You seem like a very patriotic Israeli. Does not the fact of Israeli dependence upon the U.S. in order to maintain its occupation on the West Bank and the Gaza, does this not trouble you at all? Uh, Mr. Ajami, I have, you asked me as a patriotic Israeli, and I'll answer as someone who has fought in the Middle East. Uh, one of the things that I think is unique about Israel in terms of all Americans' allies, all America's allies, is that it is perhaps the only one who has taken care of itself so far. And I would think, that America, in fact, it's not a one-way street, Israel taking from the United States. Israel is giving the United States an extraordinary bargain in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. It's the one stable democratic ally which the United States can count on. Mr. Natai, inasmuch as you're a Zionist and are committed to a Jewish state, given the fact that demographic predictions tell us that there will be an Arab majority within the current borders of Israel, 
Does this not challenge the foundations of the very state which you are committed to? Uh, I know of the latest uh, figures, population figures, that actually show a decrease in the Arab birth rate, particularly in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, as a result of the higher education and the universal education for women that didn't exist prior to Israel, uh, prior to 1967. Now, if you ask me, would I reject Palestinians or Arabs living in, in our midst? Ridiculous. Of course not. They're part of their citizens of Israel. If they no, no, I'm talking about the West Bank and Gaza. You see, we're still going back oh, to yes, the yes. core of it. Yes, I agree. Whatever okay. will be the final arrangement, these people should be free to multiply as they wish. I think that it is written in the Bible: multiply and uh, be fruitful. I think these people should have that right. I'm not going to start uh, enforcing a birth control program under any circumstance. Thank you. With that biblical injunction, I came to. Shortly after this discussion in 1978, the Arab secular groups like ANO and Hezbollah began their attacks on the encroachment on the Israeli government. But they weren't the only ones who were going to feel the fire of their fury. On April 18, 1983, the U.S. Embassy in Beirut, Lebanon is bombed by a suicide truck, killing 63 people. On October 23, 1983, a Marine barracks in Beirut is bombed by another suicide truck attack, killing 241 Marines. Throughout the 1982 and 1983 period, there were a number of attacks from groups like the PLO, Hezbollah, Hamas, Abu Sayyaf, and other fundamentalist groups, specifically Abu Nadal, who by this time was attacking airports, even those from his own home country in Israel. It has happened again. There was no explanation, of course, as the holiday travelers were lining up to check in at the airline counters. The men of violence pounced without warning. The terrorist target was clearly the Israeli airline El Al and anyone associated with it. They didn't know who they were killing, and they didn't appear to care. Our first report is from Rome. Thirteen were killed there. And here's ABC's Hal Walker. These were some of the holiday travelers who never made it out of Rome's international airport when the four gunmen unleashed their attack. Caught by surprise in the lethal hail of bullets and hand grenades from the attackers, they formed a grim tableau of death. Wounded survivors described what they could of the bloodbath. I heard um, it sounded like a grenade bouncing on the floor, and I looked and there was a grenade, and it exploded, and everyone just hit the deck. We heard a commotion. And after the commotion, we heard a little pop, almost like firecrackers, and I thought, that's a sick joke. And then, and then everybody saw the move, and, and the crowd that I was in sort of hit the ground all at once, and we stayed there, and we could hear the, the pop, just like that. It was all, and it, but it kept going, pop, pop, pop. just all huddling together. We just sort of jumped behind the bags and the counters. It was shooting for a good five minutes, I said. I mean, it was just crazy. And there was shooting going on, and we just prayed it would stop. And finally, the, the shooting stopped, and nobody moved, and nobody moved. And then my brother yelled to me and said, 
Um, Matthew, okay? And I said, I've been hitting the legs. How about you? And he said, I've been hitting the head. And I turned around and there was blood all over the, the floor. The attack took place in one corner of the public area of the airport, entered directly from the street and accessible without a security check. The killers launched their assault from the vicinity of a hamburger stand and coffee shop several yards from the check-in counters for LL and Transworld Airlines, crowded with passengers lining up for their flights. Witnesses said the men first tossed their grenades, then began firing indiscriminately. Many of the dead were gunned down in line, others while eating breakfast at the coffee counter. At least three Americans were among the dead. One, Natasha Simpson, the 11-year-old daughter of Associated Press editor Victor Simpson and his wife, Daniela. The mother was outside the terminal when the shooting started. She said she rushed in to screams and cries and saw her husband dripping blood, her son on the floor. They are both okay, she said, but I lost my 11-year-old daughter. American Ambassador Maxwell Robb visited several of the injured and expressed outrage at what he called the senseless brutality. It's a terrible reminder that terrorism is still with us and must be stamped out. Police and security guards wounded and captured one of the attackers, identified as Tigrini Algren. He carried a Moroccan passport, as did the other three who were killed. Later in the hospital, the prisoner described himself as a Palestinian fighter. Authorities closed the international airport for more than three hours after the shooting, creating a scene of mass confusion and a logjam of backed-up flights. Passenger traffic had begun to return to normal by the time police began removing bodies of the victims to the central morgue. Hal Walker, ABC News, Rome. So only one of the Americans killed has been absolutely identified, that 11-year-old girl. The other two are men. One is John Dunacori, 20, of Wilmington, Delaware, and we have no name for the second man. The attack in Vienna was no less violent, though the loss of life was not as great. The target there, once again, was the Israeli airline. Here's ABC's Charles Glass. The attack here at Vienna's airport began at the same time as the war in Rome. Three armed men ran into the east door of the airport, hurling grenades and firing Kalashnikov automatic rifles as they went. They threw one grenade to clear the stairs up to the departure lounge. At the top of the stairs, police inspector Irvin Kruckenfellner heard the explosion. The first thing I heard was the explosion of hand grenades. The first thing I saw, everything was full of dust and smoke and there was shooting in every direction. People were falling to the ground. The wounded were screaming. It was terrible. There was panic among the scores of people waiting to check in for their flights. Police shot at the gunmen who directed their fire at the people standing between a Christmas tree and the check-in counter for the El Al flight to Tel Aviv. Some people jumped to the ground and others desperately behind the counter. They rolled the grenades along the ground and all the people went immediately behind the counter, but some were trapped. And then we lay there underneath the counter, and then it started all over again. One man, an Austrian, was killed instantly. A second died on the way to the hospital. Firing continued for a few more minutes while survivors, including by now the many wounded, tried to hide. The men then ran back down the same stairs, firing rifles and rolling grenades to cover their escape. They stole a Mercedes and drove along the north road of the airport with three police cars in hot pursuit. One was driven by police inspector Peter Bruckner. Approximately 200 meters on, the car didn't move because it was hit by around 19 bullets. We took dogs out and went slowly to where they were. We fired two more rounds 
and the surrender. One of the attackers lay dead by the roadside. The other two gunmen were seriously wounded and taken to this hospital where they are still under police guard. The attackers at Vienna Airport seem to have had at least one important objective, to kill or wound as many innocent people as possible. That much they achieved, though police here slowed them down. What they haven't said is what their political objective is. Charles Glass, ABC News, Vienna. Peter Goldmark, the executive director of the New York Port Authority, is concerned that in light of terrorist attacks occurring around the world, Port Authority facilities, including the World Trade Center, could become terrorist targets. With the rise of secular Arab fundamentalists, the growing influence of the Arab Mujahideen fighters being helped through CIA and foreign governments, and through the fervent radical fundamentalist groups, secular and religious, having a common cause with the Palestinian problem in Israel, it seemed that the foreign governments of the United States and Israel were brewing something big for the future without even them realizing it. Goldmark was considered a visionary, someone who saw the ripple before the water break. He would create the Office of Special Planning to evaluate the vulnerabilities of all Port Authority facilities and present recommendations to minimize the risks of attack. To help lead the group, Goldmark chose Edward O'Sullivan, who has experience in counterterrorism from earlier careers in the Navy and Marine Corps. The group would consult with the FBI, the CIA, the Secret Service, NSA, and Defense Department in regards to the current day threat reporting. According to the matter of the World Trade Center bombing in litigation from the Supreme Court, New York County, dated January 20th, 2004, they talked about the history of the Port Authority establishing the Terrorism Planning Office. In the early 1980s, the Port Authority was aware of terrorist activities occurring in other areas of the world and that the World Trade Center was a highly symbolic target vulnerable to terrorist attack. In response to the creation of the Terrorist Planning Intelligence Section, which was assigned to Detective Sergeant Peter Karam, who gave him the tasks of identifying terrorist groups and Port Authority targets and to assess the vulnerability of other Port Authority facilities to terrorist attacks. In another report entitled Terrorism Assessment, World Trade Center 1984, this report prepared at the request of the Port Authority Superintendent of Police, the Port Authority was warned that more than at any time in its history, the World Trade Center should be considered a prime target for domestic and international terrorists. The report also specifically warned that the parking lots are accessible to the public and are highly susceptible to car bombings. Later that year, again in 1984, the Port Authority created the Office of Special Planning to address and evaluate the vulnerabilities of Port Authority facilities to terrorist attacks and to formulate recommendations to prevent and minimize the risks of such tasks and acts. 
The OSP staff included Port Authority civilian or police personnel with experience in terrorism, operational security, technical technology, bomb investigations, operations, and military operations. The OSP's director, Mr. O'Sullivan, was experienced in terrorism and counterterrorism from his 10-year career in the Navy and Marine Corps. OSP's mission was to study and prepare measures which would make Port Authority facilities less vulnerable to terrorist attacks and to improve the organization's prevention and defensive capabilities to establish liaison with foreign and domestic units engaged in counterterrorism activities and to develop an awareness among staff of the potential terrorist threats and the need for vigilance and preparedness. The OSP spent four to six months studying the World Trade Center, including its building design through examination of photographs, blueprints, diagrams, and plans. The OSP brought in experts such as those who built the World Trade Center and those who operated it as well as experts familiar with sabotage and explosives, and had them walk through to access and to assess what was vulnerable and identify critical areas of the World Trade Center that, if damaged, could impair the building's ability to function or to require it to shut down. To formulate its recommendations, OSP conducted a target analysis in which it analyzed Port Authority targets in terms of circularity, accessibility, vulnerability, recoupability, and extended effect that destruction of the specific target would have. Critically, is the measure of the impact of the normal flow of events by the target's destination. Accessibility refers to the terrorist's ability to reach and attack a vulnerable point. Vulnerability is the extent to which the target would be damaged. Recoupability is the speed at which normal operation would resume after an attack. Finally, OSP evaluated the extended effect of destruction of the target. In a preliminary report entitled World Trade Center Study Brief, OSP staff considered several attack scenarios, including most significantly, a bomb-laden truck attack. In the report, it was stated that given the recent truck bombings in Lebanon, it was important to consider this possibility and that a strategically positioned truck or van could cause extensive structural damage to the World Trade Center, as well as a large number of casualties. OSP raised questions about the scenario including which areas across the street or in the parking lot below provided the greatest bang for the buck. What security exists for a truck bombing at World Trade Center and what other security measures against this scenario are viable? Although these reports and directives were issued Many years prior to the 1993 World Trade Center bombing, hardly anyone took effect into increased security. Rick Rescorla was a decorated Vietnam veteran who served on the front lines in the battlefield of La Trang with the legendary Hal Moore. 
Frescorla had moved to New Jersey in 1985 and was employed as vice president in charge of security at Morgan Stanley Dean Witter. Frescorla's office was on the 44th floor of the South Tower. In a New Yorker article entitled, The Real Heroes Are Dead, written by James B. Stewart, dated February 3rd, 2002, Rascorla was worried about the security lapses in the South Tower. He was a good man trying to do something. From the article, quote, Because of Hill's training in counterterrorism, Dan Hill, in 1990, Rascorla asked him to come up and take a look at the security situation. He knew I could be an available-minded bastard, Hill recalls. At the World Trade Center, Rascorla asked him a simple question. How would you take this building out? Hill looked around and asked to see the basement. They walked down an entrance ramp into a parking garage. There was no visible security, and no one stopped them. Hill would remark, this is a soft touch. I'd arrive with a truck full of explosives in here, walk out, and light it off. As a result of Hill's observation and his own, Rascola arranged a meeting with a security official for the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, which managed the building. Hill recalled, they told Rick to kiss off. They told him, you lease your stories, you worried about that. The rest of the building is not your concern, end quote. By 1987, Zahid al-Sheikh Mohammed introduced Khalid Sheikh Mohammed to Abdul Rasul Sayyaf. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed would begin services as Sayyaf's secretary to help recruit Arabs to fight in Afghanistan for Sayyaf's faction. While in Afghanistan, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed would meet some of the most notable warlords and Islamic figures on the front lines. People like Osama bin Laden, Dr. Ayman al-Swahiri, and Abdullah Yusuf Azam. Meanwhile, Zahid al-Sheikh would be employed as head of the Pakistani branch of one of the biggest charities in Pakistan's Mercy International. A book later published by Simon Reeve called The New Jackals, Ramzi Youssef, Osama bin Laden, and the Future to Terrorism, would allege that this charity-based organization with ties with the CIA was used to funnel money to Islamic militants during the Soviet war. It is not known when Zahid got involved with the charity, but he is heading its Pakistani branch by 1988 when his nephew, Ramza Youssef, first comes to Afghanistan. According to Reeve, in the spring of 1993, U.S. investigators raid Zahid's house while searching for Ramza Youssef. Documents and pictures are found suggesting close links and even a friendship between Zahid and Osama bin Laden and the Pakistan ISI. However, another meeting was taking place in December of 1982. But how do we know about this meeting? Because in November of 2001, Swiss investigators will search the home of Youssef Nada, who is the leader of the Al-Taqwa Bank. The Al-Taqwa Bank is a financial institution incorporated in 1988. It is based out of the Bahamas, Switzerland, and Liechtenstein. The bank was accused by the United States of having links to Islamic terrorist organizations, alleging that it was a major source of funds for the operations of Osama bin Laden and his associates. Al-Taqwa Bank was subsequently placed 
on the list of entities and, his, and individuals associated with al-Qaeda and is maintained by the UN Security Council. The Al-Taqwa Bank network of financial companies was set up in 1988 by prominent members of the Muslim Brotherhood, most notably Al-Taqwa's chairman and co-founder, Yusuf Nada. Later, Ahmed Huber, a vocal admirer of the Muslim Brotherhood, was hired because of the company needing at least one Swiss citizen on board. Another co-founder was Francois Gernot, one of the key managers and manager of Nazi assets after the Second World War, who later attended notoriety as the publisher of the Joseph Goebbels Diaries. A lot of nefarious history being played here. Nada and other Al-Taqwa directors are prominent members of the Muslim Brotherhood. According to a Newsweek article dated December 24, 2004, they will say, quote, the Muslim Brotherhood founded in Egypt in 1928 as a religious and quasi-political counterweight to the corrupt and increasingly decadent royalist and colonial governments dominating the Islamic world always had two faces. One, a peaceful public, proselytizing and social welfare-oriented wing. The other, a clandestine paramilitary wing. Intelligence and law enforcement officials say that while some branches of elements in the Brotherhood, such as the offshoots now operating in Egypt and Syria, have pledged to work for their goal of a worldwide Islamic caliphate using peaceful means and electoral politics, the Brotherhood has always spun off as many, if not most, of the more violent local and international groups devoted to the cause originated under Saeed Qutb. End quote. However, during their investigation of this house, Swiss investigators discovered a 14-page document from December 1982 entitled The Project. Nada had claimed not to know who wrote the document or how he came to have it. And he says he disagrees with most of the contents. The document entails the strategic plan whose ultimate goal is the establishment of the reign of God over the entire world. The document begins, quote, This report presents a global vision of an international strategy of Islamic policy, end quote. Attending this meeting were Nada, members of the Takwit Bank, Omar Abdel Rahman, and Ahmed Ben Bella, who was an Algerian politician and a socialist revolutionary. But when one looks at the backgrounds of these people, such as Ahmed Ben Bella, who played an important role during the, Af the Algerian War of Independence against France, was a socialist and a non-Islamist who closely aligned with being under Arab socialism or Pan-Arabism, which originated under Egyptian president Kamel Abdel Nasser. Omar Abdel Rahman, one of the leaders of the Gamma Islamia, was an Islamist and a leader of the Takfiri movement. And of course, Yusuf El Nada, who himself has agreed to be part of the Muslim Brotherhood and is a noted businessman who has dealings with secular and radical fundamentalists. An interesting mix that would allow for others to question why these people 
would basically come together and work on formalizing and influencing radical fundamentalism to permeate not just throughout the Arab world, but also to the Western world. And as tens of millions began pouring in from Islamic charities abroad, and also from sympathizers in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, as well as money coming in from local charities inside the United States and countries worldwide into the Maktab al-Kidamata offices in Peshawar, the recruiting center of the MACT even extended upon the borders of Pakistan into as far-reaching places such as Arizona and New York City. One building in particular was the Al-Kifa Refugee Center, which was located inside a mosque in Flatbush, Brooklyn, known as the Al-Faduq Mosque. On December 29, 1987, three men, Mustafa Shalabi, Fawaz Dharma, and Ali Shinawi, formally filed papers incorporating Al-Kifa. At first, it is located inside the Al-Faruq Mosque, which is led by Dharma, but eventually it will get his own office space next door to the mosque. Shalabi, a naturalized Egyptian, runs the office with two assistants, Mahmoud Abalima and El Said Nosser. Both Abalima and Nosser were veterans of the Afghan-Soviet War, which were trained in the CIA cyclone program. Shalabi was designated as the co-signer of the Al-Faruq Mosque and who was born in Egypt. He had strong ties to the Afghan and Palestinian causes, which had made him quite the recruiter and fundraiser at the mosque. He would also hold meetings at the Al-Kifa concerning those that wished to travel to join the Jihad against the Soviets that could connect through the MAC offices in the United States and in Pakistan. Like Abdullah Yusuf Azam, Shalabi wished to participate in the actual meaning of jihad, the struggle within one's soul, the fight between good and evil. The members of the Al-Faruq, however, were quite enamored with the audio cassettes of an Egyptian radical cleric whose orations concerning the evils from the West and Israel were trying to interfere with the Arabs in Afghanistan through non-governmental organizations known as NGOs. This Egyptian cleric would soon arrive inside the United States and make his presence immediately known. However, Mahmoud Abalima and El Said Nosser would not be the only people to come out of this conflict and situated into the Al-Faruq Mosque. The notable person that I was talking about is Omar Abdel Rahman, who would become a major player in mosques in New York City and New Jersey. Like I said, Rahman was known as the blind sheikh, who lost his eyesight when he was 10 months old. Born in 1938 in the Al-Gemaliya Tavali governorate in Egypt, Rahman was not deterred by his infliction. He studied the Braille version of the Quran as a child and had it memorized by the age 11. Soon thereafter, he enrolled at the prestigious Al-Azhar University. Soon after leaving university, Abdel Rahman began preaching against the secular regime under the Egyptian president, Gamal Abdel Nasser. Rahman had also become one of the de facto rulers of the fundamentalist sect, the Gamma Islamiyah. On October 6, 1981, Egyptian president Anwar Sadat was assassinated by members of the Gamma Islamiyah and the Al-Jihad. 
Rahman was over one of 2,000 people detained and arrested for suspected of being involved with the State Security Investigation Services, also known as the SSI, which were a brutal intelligence service, which employed torture techniques to extract information from its prisoners. Members of the SSI were trained under the Russian intelligence services, the KGB, in which the KGB, during their tenure of Gamal del Nasser in the 1950s, trained the SSI in the brutal torture methods. Rahman, because he was blind, was saved from the worst torture methods. Nevertheless, he was harshly treated while members were hung by piano wire, drowned, and even lit by electric cables on their hands and feet. Rahman spent three years in Egyptian jails while awaiting trial on charges of issuing a fatwa resulting in the 1981 assassination of Anwar Sadat. He was not convicted of conspiracy in the Sadat assassination and sent to house arrest in 1984, where he would shortly escape his confines in a washing machine. He left for Afghanistan to become a recruiter for the conflict in Afghanistan. He would travel to the Sudan and Egypt, where he would apply for a tourist U.S. visa. All the while, he is under a terrorist watch list, which is issued to all naturalization centers around the world. The Cairo U.S. Embassy, where Rahman went to apply, had CIA agents employees as its staff. There, he would be granted a U.S. tourist visa. However, he would be granted time and time again in his renewal of his visa. A State Department representative discovered that Rahmad had, in fact, received four U.S. visas dating back to December 15, 1986. All of them were given to him by CIA agents acting as consular officers at the American embassies in Khartoum and Cairo. The response from the CIA was simply to feign ignorance. They had not known Rahman was on a terrorist watch list, nor had they ever heard of him before. The Boston Globe, in an article dated June 21, 1995, will say that throughout the 1980s, the blind sheikh, Omar Abdel Rahman, was a spiritual leader of the CIA-backed Arab Mujahideen. The Atlantic Monthly, in an article published in May of 1996, will later report that in the late 1980s in Peshawar, Pakistan, Abdul Rahman became involved with the U.S. and Pakistani intelligence officials who were orchestrating the Afghan war. The 60 or so CIA and Special Forces officers based their consideration of Rahman as a valuable asset. According to one of them, they overlooked his anti-Western message and incitement to holy war because they wanted him to help unify the Arab Mujahideen groups. He is unable to unify the groups, but he does help coordinate some of their activities. He tends to favor the two most radically anti-Western factions led by Gulbuddin Hekmatar of the Hizb-e-Islami Army and Abdul Rasul Sayyaf. By July of 1993, the, world, the New York Times had penned an expose regarding the blind sheikh's tourist visas approved by the CIA. Quote, Central Intelligence Agency officers reviewed all seven applications made by Sheikh Omar Abdel Rahman to enter the United States between 1986 
1990, and only once turned him down because of his connections to terrorism. Government officials said today, Mr. Abdel Rahman helped to recruit Arab Muslims to fight in the American-backed war in Afghanistan, and his lawyer and Egyptian officials have said he was helped by the CIA to enter the United States. American officials had acknowledged last week that the diplomat at the United States Embassy in Khartoum, who signed the May 1990 visa request that allowed Mr. Abdul Rahman to enter the United States, was in fact a CIA officer, end quote. And according to Barrett Rubin, a Columbia University professor and senior fellow on the Council on Foreign Relations, the CIA relies even more heavily on Omar Abdel Rahman. Rubin claimed that the CIA pays to send them back to Peshawar to preach to the Afghans and the Arabs about the necessity of unity to overthrow the Kabul communist regime. As a, resort, as a reward for his help, the CIA gives him a visa to the United States, even though he is on a terrorism watch list. Rubin's expose on Rahman and his ties to the CIA were published by The New Yorker in that March 17, 1995 article. Another example of good guys allowing evil to exist unimpeded. In Rahman's case, even facilitated. Another suspect that was held in the Torah prison in Cairo and who was suspected of being behind the assassination of Sadat was Dr. Ayman al-Zwahiri. Al-Zwahiri's background details a man conflicted between his oath as a physician and his loyalty to the works of notable authors such as Saeed Qutb and Isa al Kamari. He studied at Cairo University and graduated in 1974. He served as a surgeon in the Egyptian army between 1974 and 1978. Yet, even at the early age of 17, Al-Zwahiri had formed an underground cell with the goal to overthrow the government and establish an Islamic state. The group consisted of university students and members of the Egyptian military. This group would be known as Al-Jihad, as it grew with other radical smaller cells who were operating in northern Egypt. However, Al-Zwahiri was also quite adamant opposing the strict Egyptian regime under Gamal Abdel Nasser, and thus formed a secret underground cell after the Egyptian government executed Saeed Qutb and the conspiracy to overthrow Nasser was found out. The core members of the group were Sain Imam Abdulaziz, also known as Dr. Fadl, Muhammad Abdul Rahim al-Sharqawi, Rafai Taha, Kamal al-Said Samib al-Mim, Rafai Sarut, and Oliwi Mustafa Elawi. Members, many members of this initial group were the core founders of Al-Jihad, later renamed the Egyptian Islamic Jihad. Some, including Saidi Mamal Sharif, who helped to create the foundations of radical Takfiri ideology, which permeated the organizations such as Al-Qaeda, and much later, the Islamic State and the Levant. Al-Zwahiri would shortly be arrested by the Egyptian SSI. Once again, Al-Zwahiri would find himself, this time, under the wider conspiracy of assassinating and being behind the assassination 
of Egyptian President Anwar Sadat in 1981. The Egyptian press called it the Great Jihad Case, in which the court trials were held at the Egypt Higher State Security Court in Nassau City Exhibition Center on December 4th, 1982. There was another meeting that was taking place. This time, a meeting between U.S. officials and Omar al-Darrahman's group, the Gamma Islamiyah. According to U.S. cable, dated May 1989, the cable would outline, quote, leadership and identity. Blank asserted that the Islamic group numbers some 150,000 to 200,000 people, in addition to the small number, including 1,500 arrested since April 1st in prison. Rahman dismissed any distinction between sympathizers and more deeply committed activities among the claim membership, which we suspect in any case as exaggerated. However, the Interior Minister has publicly confirmed that Rahman's claim of 1,500 arrestees since April 7th are not overstated. The group is well organized and its members communicate directly through the organization from one end of Egypt to the other. Groups such as Al-Jihad, Al-Nagun, Min Nasar, Takfir Wal-Halima, etc., either no longer exist outside prison walls or have few followers. The Islamic group, Gamma Islamiyah, and the Muslim Brotherhood are the only such Islamic groups active throughout Egypt today. The group differs with the Muslim Brotherhood, both in the group and both outside the country. Smaller groups exist in local areas, but lack the kind of correct religious guidance provided by the Islamic group's Mufti, Omar Abdel Rahman. End quote. The ideologies of Saeed Qutb, of Abdullah Yusuf Azam, and others began drawing on groups and individuals who would have a more nefarious effect. With the ramifications of Rahman's presence in New York City and New Jersey, they would soon have reverberating effects, including the first instance of a terrorist attack by an Arab fundamentalist on U.S. soil. On November 5, 1990, the founder of the ultra-nationalist group, the Jewish Defense League, Rabbi Marikahana, was holding a lecture at the Marriott Hotel located at 525 Lexington Avenue in Manhattan. The lecture at the Eastside Hotel was organized by the Zionist Emergency Evacuation Rescue Organization. Approximately 60 people attended to hear Kahani this evening. Many were from the Flatbush section where he was born. Shortly after, Kahana was surrounded by a small group who was asking follow-up questions and well-wishing the enigmatic rabbi. It was 9.03 p.m. when a man wearing a kippah, which is a Jewish hat, began to make his way toward the group surrounding the rabbi. Kahani did not immediately notice the man, 
who extended his right arm, which was holding a 357 caliber handgun. A shot was fired, hitting him squarely in the neck. He fell, and his preceding commotion was pandemonium. One man near the door managed to grab the killer in a bear hug. However, the assailant managed to shoot him in the leg and escape down the hall. The shooter immediately fled the hotel. However, right behind him, in a furious mob chase, Tahani attendees and some within the closer circle began the chase after his assassin. The assassin was expecting a yellow cab to be waiting for him. When he did not see him immediately, he entered another cab, which was waiting by Lexington and 49th. The driver was not known to this assailant. However, the driver noticed a gun being held by his, count by his customer. The assassin noticed a crowd coming from behind and left the cab. Running down the street, the driver who was supposed to be known to the assailant was Mahmoud Abalima, a red-headed Egyptian who was a regular congregant of the Al-Farouk Mosque in Brooklyn. But alas, he was not there to receive the shooter. The wailing chants of get him from the mob was heard by Carlos Acosta, a police officer for the United States Postal Inspection Service, who made him snap his mech and quickly current to his right, and who was armed himself. Acosta saw the assailant running directly towards him. And then he drew his pistol, ordering him to freeze. The assailant drew his weapon also, but not in time. As both men exchanged fire, the assailant was hit in the chin. However, Acosta, who had been hit in the chest, both men fell. The assailant, however, was captured by the officers and the mob. The cold streets was beginning to fill up with a menacing mob of Kahani followers and bystanders now running to the commotion. Ambulances shortly arrived, first taking Acosta, then the assailant, to Bellevue Hospital. It was there that Kahana was mortally wounded, had died. The police soon learned of the assailant's identity. His name was El Said Nocer. Almost immediately, detectives would retrieve a search warrant for Nocer's Jersey City apartment located at 40 Pampero Avenue. While they entered, they detained two men who were also there, Mahmoud Abalima and Mohammed Salome. Detectives began a thorough search of the premises. They would find a multitude of incriminating items. They would also shock the authorities about what they uncovered. And what they uncovered were the following. Thousands of rounds of ammunition, maps and drawings of New York City landmarks, including the World Trade Center, documents in Arabic containing bomb-making formulas and details of Islamic militant cells and mentions of the term Al-Qaeda, recorded sermons of Sheikh Omar of the Rahman, in which he encourages followers to destroy the edifices of capitalism and destroy the enemies of Allah by destroying their high world buildings. Tape recorded phone conversations of El Said Nocer reporting to Omar Abdel Rahman about paramilitary training and even discussing bomb making manuals. Videotape talks that Ali Muhammad delivered at the John F. Kennedy Special Warfare Center at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. Top secret manuals also from Fort Bragg. There are even classified documents belonging to the U.S. Joint Chiefs of Staff and the Commander-in-Chief of the Army's Central Command. These manuals and documents clearly come from Ali Muhammad, 
who completed military service at Fort Bragg the year before and frequently stayed in Nocera's house, as well as a detailed and top secret plan for Operation Bright Star, a special operations training exercise simulating an attack on Baluchistan, a part of Pakistan between Afghanistan and the Arabian Sea. Detective Borelli was intrigued by the army manuals. Who is this Ali Muhammad? El Said Nocera had previously heard the audio recordings of Rahman while played on the cassette radio in his home. When he gradually became infatuated with Rahman's ideals, Detective Joseph Borelli, the New York Police Department's chief detective, would publicly declare the assassination the work of a lone DeGrange gunman before the press. He would further state, quote, I'm strongly convinced that he acted alone. He didn't seem to be part of a conspiracy or any terrorist organization, end quote. Even with the remarkable litany of incriminating evidence, obviously suggesting otherwise, obviously suggesting that someone in the American military had given classified documents to a public individual. But who is El Said Nocer? Born in Pait Said, Egypt, Nocer had entered the United States on a visitor's visa in 1981. According to immigration records, and during the following year in Pittsburgh, married Karen Ann Mills, an American who converted to Islam. Nocer was fired as a diamond setter in Pittsburgh, in part because his efforts to convert co-workers to Islam interfered with his work. The New York Newsday reported that the family then lived at the several New Jersey addresses and that El Sayyid Nocer worshipped at the Masjid Al-Salam Mosque in Jersey City, New Jersey, which was a dilapidated third-floor storefront above a check-cashing center and a Chinese restaurant. According to the Newsday article, quote, Nocer has used a chain of addresses and identities, including the surnames Nocer, Nocer, and Nasser, authorities said. Last year, he was granted U.S. citizenship as El Sayyad Abdulaziz El Sayyad. When arrested, police said he was carrying three driver's licenses with three different addresses and a newspaper announcement of Kahani's speaking engagement, end quote. Nocer was indicted for the murder of Kahani and also possessing an unlicensed firearm and an additional charges of attempted murder on a federal employee in the shooting of Acosta. But who was training these Mujahideen in firearms at the Al Farouk in small arms tactical training to begin with? Investigators had to run a name, a name that was found at the documents at El Sayyid Nocera's house, Ali Muhammad, another Egyptian. Muhammad's profile is quite the mystery and also having quite the dubious history with foreign and domestic intelligence. Born in Egypt in 1952, Muhammad enlisted in the Egyptian army in 1971 and achieved the rank of intelligence colonel until 1984. He also worked as an intelligence officer in the Egyptian special forces with duties including the recruitment and training of intelligence assets. He served with Khalid al-Islambouli, who was an Islamist terrorist who carried out the actual assassination of Amr al-Sadat in 1981. 
after the assassination, Muhammad was discharged on suspicion of fundamentalism. During the same year, he joined the underground Islamist terrorist organization that had assassinated Sadat, the Egyptian Islamic Jihad, led by Dr. Ayman al-Swahiri and Rafai Taha. For the next 18 months, on the orders of Dr. Zwahiri, Muhammad worked for the Egyptian national airline, Egypt Air, as a counterterrorism security advisor, a position that enabled him to acquire sensitive information about air piracy counterterrorism measures for the Egyptian Islamic Jihad. Almost immediately after his termination from the Egyptian military, he entered the Cairo CIA station and began offering his services as an informant. They queried Muhammad's background and found him to be a worthwhile prospect. And they gave him his first opportunity to gather information about the paramilitary political organization Hezbollah. He was ultimately transferred to the station dedicated to espionage on Iran in Frankfurt, West Germany. According to author Lawrence Wright from his book, The Looming Tower, page 180, a rather puzzling incident took place while at the Hezbollah-affiliated mosque in Hamburg. Quote, Muhammad immediately told the Iranian cleric in charge that he was an American spy assigned to infiltrate the community. The mosque had already been penetrated by his announcement and was passed on to the CIA, which terminated Muhammad and sent out cables labeling him untrustworthy. By this time, however, Muhammad was already in California on a visa waiver wire program that was sponsored by the agency itself, one designed to shield valuable assets or those that have performed important services for the country, end quote. When it was learned that Muhammad was seeking a visa in 1985, the CIA claimed that it would warn other federal agencies at the time not to allow him entry. Nevertheless, Ali Muhammad was approved of travel and moved to the States in September of 1985 in Santa Clara, California. During his time there, he met another person, Khalid Abu al-Dahab, a fellow member of the Egyptian Islamic Jihad who moved to Santa Clara in 1987. Muhammad's plan was to set up a base of operations connecting to the Egyptian radicals under al-Zuhiri. The recruitment abilities that he once was tutored and trained under during his tenure with the Egyptian Special Forces Intelligence Wing were now coming to fruition. Al-Dahab's apartment becomes an important communications hub for Al-Qaeda and Islamic Jihad cells all over the world. For much of the early 1990s, the Egyptian government cut direct phone links to countries like Sudan, Yemen, Afghanistan, or Pakistan in an effort to disrupt communications between radical militants. So Dahab's apartment acts as a telephone operator for the Islamic Jihad network, using a three-way calling feature to connect operatives in far-flung countries, such as Sudan, Yemen, Afghanistan, Pakistan. He communicates with bin Laden's base in Sudan, where bin Laden lives until 1996. He receives phone calls from the likes of Islamic Jihad leader Ayman al-Zuhiri, Abu Hafs al-Masri, and also Omar al-Rahman. Al-Zuhiri, who also visits California twice in 1993 and 1995 with Ali Muhammad 
acting as personal bodyguard. In September of 1985, Muhammad befriends an American woman, Linda Sanchez. He meets on the airplane flight to the United States. They get married less than two months later, and he moves to her residence in Santa Clara, California. The marriage also helped him to become a U.S. citizen in 1989. He enlisted in the U.S. Army in 1986 and was stationed at Fort Bragg in North Carolina until 1989. Muhammad's duties at Fort Bragg ranged from clerical work to instructing soldiers heading to the Middle East on Islamic culture. He joined the U.S. Army Reserves following his term of active duty. Muhammad trains and lectures soldiers being deployed to the Middle East on the region's culture and politics. He also produces and appears in training videotapes about the Middle East. In one tape, he asserts that devout Muslims are widely misunderstood. Muhammad would eventually become a drill sergeant at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, and was hired to teach courses on Arabic culture at the John F. Kennedy Special Warfare's division and school. He won over anyone he personally came into contact as he possessed an air of charm, while also being queen, be, being quite stern. He won respect, even with his friends and neighbors, who still had questions about Muhammad, the man, who was very well reserved when talking about his private life. In an article by the Wall Street Journal dated November 26, 2001, they described Ali Muhammad as a man of mystery. Quote, at some point during Ali Muhammad's U.S. military service, possibly towards the end of his service, he expresses a great interest in being used as an intelligence operative and asks his military superiors to be introduced to a CIA representative. The request is granted. The CIA representative who meets him appears to have no knowledge of the CIA's previous contact with him. The outcome of this meeting is unknown. However, after he leaves the military and moves to Santa Clara, California, his new friends and neighbors take it for granted that Muhammad is helping the CIA support the Arab Mujahideen fighting the Soviets in Afghanistan. He doesn't tell them that he's working for the CIA, but does say that he worked for the CIA before and hopes to work for them again. A neighbor who knew Muhammad and his wife will later say, everyone in the community knows he was working as a liaison officer between the CIA and the Afghan cause, and everyone was sympathetic, end quote. Soon after returning from Afghanistan, he would travel to Brooklyn at the Al Keeper Refugee Center whether from charity fronts or just random people making money drop-offs at the local mosque and center, what was known to those in the know was that it was part of a CIA hub overall. Muhammad is just a spoke on a very big wheel. In short time, Ali Muhammad, the Egyptian radical fundamentalist and CIA FBI informant, was becoming a primary recruiter at the Al Kifa Center and also its strict instructor in guerrilla tactical training. He frequently spends his weekends traveling to meet with Islamic activists at the Al Kifa Refugee Center in Brooklyn and at the Masjid Al Salam in Jersey City. Muhammad teaches them survival techniques, map reading, and how to recognize tanks and other Soviet weapons. He would frequently stay at the home of El Said Nasser, 
where certain documents would be linked to him as the investigations into Kahani's assassination would find the items from Fort Bragg link to Ali Muhammad. But again, according to New York detectives such as Borelli, El Sayyid Nosser was a lone gunman. How ridiculous. Inside the Al-Farouk Mosque was another informant who just also happened to be another Egyptian, Imad Salem. Salem had been previously employed as a security guard at the Woodward and an engineer at a Best Western Hotel in New York. Salem would relish old stories, including one where he would have fought as a sniper in the Yom Kippur War in 1973. He was recruited to conduct spying on Russian dignitaries who were staying at the hotel by FBI agent Nancy Floyd, who found Salem to be quite the asset. During a meeting with Floyd in 1991, Salem would inform Floyd of a radical cleric who was inside the United States by the name of Omar Abdel Rahman. Floyd and her assistant, Len Petrodisis, a 27-year veteran of the Bureau, according to Petrodisis, Salem remarked, quote, I know you are working Russians, but there was a man in the city, an Egyptian, who was so much more dangerous than the worst KGB hood, end quote. Salem had come through before, but now he was upping the stakes. Middle Eastern terrorism was in Nancy Floyd's department. Floyd wanted to know the name of this radical cleric from Egypt. Salem told her it was Omar Abdel Rahman. Floyd was intrigued to know more about this mysterious Egyptian, and so she took off wanting to find out what she could. Floyd approached a pair of agents in her own Foreign Counterintelligence Division on the 25th floor at 26 Federal Plaza, who were familiar with the Egyptian diplomats who might be engaged in espionage under UN diplomatic cover. They immediately recognized the name of Rahman. Floyd was now quite invested to know more. According to famed author Peter Lance, who go on to publish important books such as A Thousand Years for Revenge and Triple Cross, detailing the Arab fundamentalist plots and terrorism incidents of the 1993 World Trade Center bombing and the terrorist events of September 11, 2001, would write about the initial meeting between Imad Salem and the New York Counterterrorism Squad at the FBI in an article entitled Salem, The Man Who Risked His Life for America. Quote, the agents from the Egyptian counterintelligence branch suggested that Nancy Floyd bring this newly discovered asset to the attention of one of their agents, who was attempting to infiltrate Middle Eastern terrorist groups. He was located two floors below in the Joint Terrorism Task Force. What's his name? asked Nancy. Antisev, was said one of the agents. His partner, a cop named Lee, Leo Napoli, given what they knew about Nocer, Abelina, and the Blind Sheikh, FBI agent John Entesev and New York Police Department detective Lou Napoli jumped when Nancy Floyd dangled Imad Salem as a possible source. According to Lou Napoli, let's meet the guy, see if he's for real. Right away, Nancy arranged a meeting at Juanita's, a now defunct Mexican restaurant on the Upper East Side. Salem basically blew them out of the water, said a source who attended the meeting. He had view cups of information, end quote. After the meeting at Juanita's, the agent and the detective regrouped with Nancy and asked if she could conceive Salem to go undercover, 
Floyd was in a position which should become the center of an investigation which was now completely new to the New York field office. But she could also be on a wild goose chase where nothing of value would be found. She was in a completely naked position and had to fully entrust her source who claimed he was a high-ranking officer in the Egyptian military. According to Peter Lance, once again, in his book, A Thousand Years for Revenge, Salem was all too ready to play the part of a spy. Quote, if there ever was an eager subject, it was Imad Salem. Dangerous as the assignment was, he'd been pining away in back-end jobs, waiting for a chance to regain some of the prestige he enjoyed as an officer in the Egyptian army. He was an individual who saw an opportunity for fame, said Napoli, being known as someone who took down the mighty blind sheikh. Assuming they could work out the salary, Salem told Nancy he was ready. He would leave his hotel day job and try to infiltrate the sheikh's cell. The bureau agreed to match his weekly paycheck so that he could work undercover full-time. Salem loved this stuff, said a source close to the operation. He got 500 a week the same pay as his hotel salary, but it wasn't about the money. And so Salem agreed to go undercover, but he had one crucial condition. He didn't want his identity disclosed. He was fearful, Napoli recalled. In no way, shape or form, did he want to be in a position where his undercover activities against the Sheikh would be known. He was also afraid for his ex-wife and his children, children back home. He didn't want his family to be the recipient of any fallout in Egypt, end quote. Imad Salem would be known not just in Egypt, but also for his informing for the FBI and the Joint Terrorism Task Force. But there would be more to come afterwards, much more, which would include multiple plots involving the World Trade Center and landmarks in New York City. This is the end of part one of this two-part series regarding the history of the 1993 World Trade Center bombing. Part two will be next week. I am your host, Adam Fitzgerald. Have a good evening and happy Easter.